Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to The Messy Truth, conversations on photography. Before we launch into this special episode... I wanted to thank you all for your continued support. Every subscription, review, share or message from listeners really means so much. Thank you for being part of this community. So it's the end of the year and what a universally unpredictable and challenging one it has been. I wanted to create this special episode to celebrate some of the personal projects, assignments and exhibitions that have been my highlights from this year. Despite the tough reality of 2020, there's been some incredible work made some of which I've already talked about this season, and many more which will be discussed in season four, which kicks off in January. In this episode, I'm talking to Alona Pardo, Sylvia Rossi, Maggie Shannon, Camilla Falquez, and Sarah Allen about the research, ideas and development that went into their individual projects. The work in this episode has not just inspired me, it's made me rethink what photography can do and the more progressive ways in which it can operate. One of my highlights of 2020 was the exhibition curated by Alona Pardo at the Barbican. Masculinity's Liberation Through Photography considered how masculinity has been coded, performed and socially constructed from the 1960s to the present day. In the wake of Me Too, the image of masculinity has come into sharper focus, with ideas of toxic and fragile masculinity permeating today's society. The exhibition charts the often complex and contradictory representations of masculinities and how they have developed and evolved over time, touching on themes including power, patriarchy, queer identity, female perceptions of men, hypermasculine stereotypes, tenderness and the family. The exhibition shows how central photography has been in the way masculinities are imagined and understood in contemporary culture. The masculinity show at the Barbican was really disarming, I felt, in so many ways, and one of the strongest shows that I've seen in years. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the catalyst for the show and kind of what the research entailed. Yeah, I mean, that's a a, a great starting point. The catalyst was, I guess, there has been a lot of shows recently, or over the last four or five years. This is a show that I'd originally... I've been speaking about and thinking about since about 2016. So it really predates the Me Too movement, which I think is kind of important to thinking uh, around it. But but I, I guess there had been a kind of dearth of shows that were precisely looking at well, revisiting second wave feminism, but also kind of looking at fourth wave feminism in contemporary practice, photography and film specifically. And I kept thinking, well, I'm coming to these shows, but but what's the other side? What's the other side of this kind of gendered question that we don't seem to see? And and, and clearly the other side of that coin was a representation of masculinity, because of course, you know, we live in a very binary world, becoming ever less so. Um, so, so it just struck me that actually we're always um, confronted or kind of um, encountering exhibitions, but also images that that place 
the the kind of the female as the subject, whether it's through the, the the female gaze or not. And I just really wanted to take a moment to think about that and explore what the other side of that was. And of course, then it's a Pandora's box, and I found myself kind of in the the kind of rabbit hole of kind of gender theory for the last four years and thinking about masculinity and why we don't see it quite as much or why it's not such a gendered um why it's not quite as gendered in the same way uh, but also you know this you know with 2016 if we cast our minds back and it feels very fresh because we're hot off you know we're, we're just you know not even 24 hours after the u.s election but there was a real sense of a resurgence of of kind of machismo you know, of of uh, what Pankaj Mishra has referred to as a kind of masculist nationalism. You know, we I only had to look, you know, to, to Putin, obviously, the, you know, Trump was very fresh, um, you know, Modi and all of these other kind of male world leaders kind of shaping their image according to really retrograde ideas of masculinity, this kind of hard masculinity. And, you know, it just been Brexit and, you know, Theresa May is talking in very kind of gendered language about strong and hard. And all of these things seem to come together to kind of, yeah. And I guess that that was really the catalyst for, for the thinking around the show and just realising that actually it just hadn't been done. Um, you know, there, there was a real, I think, I think there was a need to, a kind of an urgent need and a timely you know, it was a timely moment to to begin to reflect on what is masculinity and how is it represented. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also, you know, to add to the points that you made, we're also kind of masculinity is kind of set against this backdrop of a growing awareness of the emotional and psychological problems facing men with, you know, suicide being the biggest killer of mm. men under 35. And so there are so many different entry points to the show. And I feel like kind of, as you said, there is so much of this in our consciousness. How did you navigate such a significant and complex topic and also one that kind of continued to evolve in real time while you were putting the show together? Yeah, I mean, you know, it struck me that there were, there were because I think partly because masculinities hasn't been put under the microscope in the same way that kind of other identities have been. I think what, what I needed, I really felt I needed to do is to set out the landscape very clearly. So, you know, so the, the idea was to really tackle or address ideas around hegemonic masculinity. And that by that, I mean a kind of culturally dominant uh, patriarchal order um, and, and kind of lay out that the land um, and the landscape and begin to kind of look how artists have have, have encountered that and then destabilised and deconstructed notions of hegemonic masculinity. Um, so that's so that was my kind of starting point. And from there, it became clear that, of course, you know, we couldn't think about masculinities. And I want to underscore um, the idea of, you know, the show was called masculinities because we wanted to underscore, you know, the plurality of what that of it, what it means to become a man or indeed to be one. Um, and, and then, you know, of course, power and patriarchy, you know, queer identity, you know, how women have perceived men, you know, the family, fatherhood, kind of daddy issues seemed really critical. Um, and, and equally, of course, kind of, you know, um, through the optics of, of um, kind of the optics of race and racialization of, of particularly of the black body. Um, and so, yeah, all of those seem to really come into sharp focus when I began to look at the kind of work that was being made you know I wanted to kind of couch it in a historical framework so the show very much starts through the 19th in the 60s the, really the late 50s 
through to the present day. And yes, of course, there was a lot happening over those four years. You know, suicide rates, you know, underachievement of boys in school in particular, you know, the intersectionality of class and race with regards to masculinity. This, you know, and, and even, you know, whilst the show's been live and been on, you know, the, the scene through the kind of optics of, of the pandemic has been really interesting to reconsider some of the works in the show and how they engage with ideas of kind of, you know, ageing and demasculation or emasculation through kind of ageing and so on and so forth. It's so fascinating. It's just so loaded. Yes, I mean, it's, I mean, you know, in a way it was, it's hugely expansive as, as an undertaking because, of course, we're trying to represent you know, 50% of the world's population and to kind of distill a sense of, um, of of that kind of performativity of masculinity. And that was a really critical um, criteria for me was this idea of, you know, you know, it, you know, full disclosure is, you know, that we were buying into or setting up, you know, setting the landscape as the, you know, the idea that gender is an unfixed and performative and constructed identity. So how is it coded? How is it constructed? How is it performed? particularly through photography and film. And I wanted to really include works that that highlighted the sense of the performativity of gender. I'm curious as well, because I think the titles Masculinity's Liberation Through Photography also carry so many layers of complexity. And I'm particularly interested in this dichotomy between the medium of photography as a space for liberation, for imagining, for resistance and, and as an agent of change, but also interested in this idea of photography's complicated entanglement as a tool to reinforce heteropatriarchal dominance and kind of the lineage of photography in terms of how it has been excluding and, you you know, used as a tool of power. Um, and I wondered how much you were thinking about the medium's lineage when you were putting the show together. I mean, of course, that's at the forefront of, or was at the forefront of my mind. I mean, at the, at the, you know, at the early conception of the show, I was really thinking about the show beginning in the early 20th century. We really have to think back to, you know, artists such as Pierre Molinier or the Pajama Boys, Jared French. And there were so many uh, possible starting points. But I really decided to start it in the 1960s at this point where, you know, we have you know the women's liberation movement, the gay rights movement, you know, the civil rights struggle and so on. This kind of countercultural moment that really went hand in hand with the kind of reevaluation of gender. but. I mean, throughout his, throughout art history, if we go back to kind of Greco-Roman, you know, kind of uh, classical um, sculptures and so on, it's all about the idealised male body because ultimately masculinity is is writ large on the body. It's seen as something that's kind of normative and static and doesn't change. And so throughout art history, we've been confronted with these kind of images, um, not only through, obviously, through photography and, and much later art form. Um, and so I really wanted to address those ideas so we you know that you know that it could have been a show that was you know went all the way back really to looking at how how the male figure and masculinity because they are different um have been imaged through our history and yeah i mean that the photography is a particularly um you know it's a political tool as you as you've said it's a tool of resistance and artists have consistently used that to disrupt these very heteropatriarchal notions of masculinity and i was really interested in how artists have have used the the the, the lens to subvert 
these kind of um, these ideals associated with kind of you know, hegemonic masculinity. And one of the things I loved is the breadth of the show, because that I think is truly its success, because it's opening up all these lines of communication and contradiction between a lot of the artworks, which I found really interesting. And I wondered if you could speak to a couple of your favourite pieces in the in the exhibition, if that's possible. I don't know if they're kind of like your babies and you can't you can't have favourites. It's hard to have favourites, but there are some that stand out. It was an opportunity to include an artist like George DeRoe, the New Orleans-based artist. You know, he'd been friends with Robert Maplethorpe, but he hadn't, hadn't, his work hadn't been seen in the UK since 1985. I'd admired his work from afar for a long time, and this was a wonderful opportunity to show kind of a snapshot of, of the work that he made around his long with longtime collaborator, B.J. Robinson, which was, you know, um, so so George DeRoe is this kind of queer artist, this big kind of gregarious character working in the French quarter of New New in New Orleans, um, and and you know befriends this kind of you know this this kind of group of outliers of outsiders and misfits, and was particularly interested in um, photographing men with, with disabilities, you know, which as a subject have been excluded from art history from you know, from the uh, from the outset, we we have very few examples of of men, uh, you know, adhering to kind of idealized notions of masculinity, kind of strength and and um, and so I was I was I really wanted to include his work, and there's a particular work in the show of B J Robinson where where um, George Duro wraps B J Robinson, who's a double amputee. He's had um, he was born with a disability and had his legs amputated at quite a young age but he presents it to camera he's incredibly her suit and you know this sculpted torso he's incredibly compelling but at one in two images uh, George DeRoe wraps him in the star-spangled banner of the American flag directly and very discursively linking the idea of masculinity to the idea of statehood of nationhood and I think that's those are really important political statements and particularly today on the you know on you know on, on the day after the election this idea of thinking about masculinity and nationhood and the body and nationhood it's about the body politic but it's also about creating a much more egalitarian society but one about social justice and I think that um whilst also queering them through the lens. Um, and there's so much going on in these incredible um, black and white shots that George Duro is making in the kind of early 80s that I found utterly compelling. Um, I, I mean, there are so many great works. I mean, I love uh, Jeremy Della's So Many Ways to Hurt You, this half hour film, um, which is really a documentary about a, a, a wrestler called um, Adrian Street, who was born in a kind of Welsh mining town in 1940. And it's this incredibly candid and humorous and playful um, and powerful film with um Adrian Street talking to camera about his life, his relationship with his father, who he describes as this kind of bigoted bully. Um, and, and it, but it's incredibly camp, kind of hyper camp and theatrical. But yet he's this kind of working class, um, straight kind of male wrestler who plays on camp. Um, and I just really like the idea of humour as a subversive kind of transgressive strategy that Jeremy uses um, to explore ideas of class um and of masculinity um through campness um yeah so i mean those are just two i mean it's so hard to 
to kind of whittle down because there are over 50 artists at the show and you know, 300 and so so many works. I mean, Cara Noor's work as well from the 90, early 1980s called Gentleman, which is made up of 26 black and white photographs that she manages to take very artfully in um, all male private members clubs in, in um, London between 1981 and 83, when, you know, Margaret Thatcher is in power. These are all exclusively all male spaces. So reflecting again on, on kind of patriarchy and power, who holds the keys to power? How is a power scaffolded up the sense of entitlement? Um, and, you know, how these kind of spaces act as a, as forms of patronage, as forms of um, exclusionary spaces. Um, and, and so she has these kind of, yeah, these black and white shots taken in these, you know, these very kind of gilded noble interiors replete with kind of images of, you know, past noblemen and past premiers and so on. That kind of legitimizes their patriarchy and their power. And then alongside it, she anchors it with these very short texts. Um, that are incredibly um, sardonic um, and knowing um, and questioning. And I think she invites us to reflect exactly on that, on the invisibility of women, but the, also the invisibility of marginalised men in these spaces. So, you know, only certain types of men are allowed into the corridors of power. It's this kind of unwritten rule. Um, and she's just so kind of... Um, adeptly kind of brings that out through through that series i mean there are so many uh, they're all my favorites el perez is a brooklyn-based artist an artist from the puerto rican diaspora who kind of, um identifies as, as uh gender non-binary gender non-conforming and kind of you know, is, is exploring um the kind of gender variant communities across the u.s but this particular these two works that we're showing us operate as a kind of a diptych one's called tea um, and one's called uh, Gabriel and they're these kind of incredibly luminous spectral images one which shows their hand holding a vial of testosterone hence it's titled tea and it's so kind of sculpted by light um, but really serves as a self-portrait and kind of looks at the kind of the tangibility of masculinity you know if we think that gender is is you know I mean, it's completely disputing the idea of kind of, you know, gender as a kind of biological or essentialist um, purview and says, actually, this is something I can become. I can choose to to be a different gender. I can become something else. And you know, that's also throughout the show, you know, we're exploring ideas of kind of masculinities without men. Um, or kind of female masculinity. So the work by Castle's time lapse where they... Um, archive their shifting body as they take on as they kind of uh, over a period of kind of 23 weeks um you know go on this kind of really intense workout um and and diet regime to, in order to achieve this this kind of um the ultimate muscular male physique and it's really then you know by doing that they're scrutinizing the artificiality of masculinity this thing that's writ on the body this eight pack that's incredibly hard work and really what they're doing is pointing out how much hard work um it takes to to become that 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 kind of male form um so a lot of it is looking at you know the body there's a lot of portraiture in the show um yeah i mean i could go on but <laughs> 
it's interesting that you bring up Elle's work because I think it's also fascinating to explore this theme at a time where people are truly, in a more mainstream way, transcending binary ideas about gender. And it's mm. it's really interesting to think how this show might appear, say, in 50 years, perhaps as a relic or a document of a very different time. I think there's something really exciting about about that. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, you know, and but it's, this is, I mean, this goes back to the catalyst of the show in a way because. You know, we've never lived in a time where we are more accepting and appreciating of um, of gender fluidity, of not subscribing, of not being kind of living in this straitjacket, these kind of very narrow definitions of gender. On the one hand, um, in these kind of liberal, I would say, metropolitan spaces, and yet on the other hand, we live in a time where actually we're becoming more oppressed and repressed. So if we look to, you know, just on our doorstep in Europe, if we look to Hungary or to Poland or to Russia or to other spaces, we're actually, you know, we're, we're, we're going back. <clears throat> and, you know, so I think there's this real tension in the show between the lived experience, the micro on the one hand and the macro on the other, um, and, and how, you know, different communities are experiencing different um, relationships to to gender but ultimately i think the show is it's pointing to a, a moment of, you know ultimately as you say we'll look back on it and it, hopefully from a post-gender world where we're not defined by our kind of biological subjectivity uh, you know and, and you know we'll look at it as a record of this is how we encountered gender you know back in the the, the, the 20th century that that would be an incredibly you know wonderful place to be i think I think it's fair to say that genre distinctions don't matter anymore. We see image makers seamlessly moving between spaces, creating hybrids that offer new and dynamic perspectives. One of the places we have seen this truly evidenced is the blurring of fashion and art. It has become a space for artists to be in conversation with designers in a potent way, speaking to shared ideas about the world we inhabit. A standout example of this was Sylvia Rossi's incredible collaboration with Grace Wales Bonnet for The New Yorker. Sylvia is an Italian Tongolese London-based artist working with photography and video to explore ideas of memory, migration and diaspora. This truly personal collaboration blends values, aesthetics and ideas behind both practices into an exquisite story that feels both modern and timeless. Fashion is a relatively new endeavour for you and I wondered how it felt to get this assignment but also how you feel about making fashion images. So how I got into this assignment is, well, it was pretty simple. So I, I got an email from Elizabeth uh, Ranstrom and Joanna Milter, which are uh, photo editors at The New Yorker. So when I when I opened my email, I, I just looked at it and I thought, oh, no, like I can't do that. I, I'm not I'm not a fashion photographer. Um, it's going to be quite difficult for me to. Um, to make this work so I was about to to say no but then they kind of explained they they've seen my show at um, Joe Wood Arts and they they kind of wanted me to to do similar something similar in line with um, what my work is Um, so I kind of shyly said yes and thought I'm gonna I'm gonna try and I'm gonna give it a go and then 
um, someone from Grace's team sent me uh, a PDF with some of her work. And that PDF included loads of information about her work, but also about research. So when I was reading through it, I just so many, many connection points to to my work, my practice. So her work is informed by music and by narrative poetry. And you have all these influences just coming in and, and she doesn't hide her research but she makes it sort of available um, as a key of reading her work so I just thought that would be um, a great starting point to for, for this commission so it kind of happened really really naturally we started working together on the idea of building a set and using different props we, we used objects which were mine and some were graces and all of the objects sort of speak about this idea of community and when you when you look at the images on set you can see like an iron bell uh, which was used for instance in in my mother's village to call village meetings and you can see um, a huge radio that um, is run by like a huge batteries that Grace found in Senegal and there's a chair that is called Bowley chair that recalls an old legend from Ivory Coast that speak about community again and sacrifice of, and movement of people within the continent so we we kind of worked with different elements of building multi-layered images in the same way as I do in my own practice so it was it was a really nice commission because I was able to to replicate my process, my personal process, um, doing something that was fashion that also highlighted someone else's work. So yeah, it was really great. Yeah, that's what I really loved about it. It felt like there was such synergy between your art practice your, and your sort of, I guess, newly emerging fashion work and then also Grace's kind of world. It felt like there was such harmony there. And I've always loved the fact that your artwork really plays with this idea of construction. And as you say, you're, you're often bringing in objects or garments which help you kind of help relate or portray or layer the narratives or ideas that you're exploring why are these objects so important for you to be present? How did that become part of your process? I guess in your own practice, as well as kind of it sort of uh, flowing out into into the fashion work that you're doing. Yes, yeah, so I guess my, well, my own practice references photography from uh, from West Africa. So West Africans do portraiture starting from around the 50s, the 60s. And when you when you look at the history of that photography of that photography, you can you can see how different objects and props are used in the set to convey different meanings, but also to as a way of supporting the the person that is posing in front of the camera, like holding an object of significance. So for me, having these objects are um, having this object is really important because it's almost like having uh, something personal that you carry with you and you want you want it to be part of the 
image you're taking. So even in this case for the shooting, um, if, if I think about it um, personally, I, I showed up at a fashion shooting, which is not something um, that is, is familiar to me. I usually shoot in the studio by myself and it's a very slow process. So I thought it would be amazing to bring objects that are personal also to, to feel comfortable um, in that space. So I think, yeah, there is there are different reasons why the objects are there. What was it like working with a, with a team? Because obviously, as you say, your work is often a much more kind of personal endeavour. Was it quite interesting kind of having that dynamic of working with a stylist and a set designer? Yeah, it was, it was really amazing. Um, I, usually, I usually work by myself building these sets, which are quite simple, but also um, sometimes... I find it quite difficult to hold the set together. So for instance, I would, I would build something and then the moment I stepped on it, it would just fall apart. So it's uh, everything is kind <laughs> of unstable in the studio, but then having a set designer, it, it was amazing. I just showed up on the day and it was ready, had all the tools and everything was built fairly quickly and I just thought wow that's that's how it's actually done so yeah I've been I've been learning a lot and the collaborative process has been really amazing very different from my personal practice but also yeah quite quite nice to experience and what was it like working with Grace it feels like, as you kind of touched on earlier, it's, it feels like it was such a meaningful collaboration in that you guys had so many commonalities in terms of your reference points and kind of some of the ideas in which your work, both, both of your work speak to, but in very different ways. Yeah, what was that experience like? No, it was, it was really good because, well, as soon as, she, as soon as they sent me that PDF explaining her work and her research, it almost felt like we had a connection already. So on the day when we worked together and I was shooting her portrait and her clothes, it was it was a very simple communication where we, we sort of touched base on what we wanted to get out of those images. And it was it was such an easy collaboration. Um, so, yeah, I was really I was really happy to be part of this. What did you learn about yourself in, in taking on this assignment and in reflecting back on how you work best and kind of what working processes really suit your style? Um, so I guess I, I enjoyed the collaborative process because it was, it was very different from my own practice uh, where I'm used to work by myself in a quiet, env- quiet environment and quite slowly. Uh, but also I learned that fashion is really fun and you get to work with really passionate people and yeah at the moment uh, I kind of feel that urge to spend some time focusing on my own practice and reflecting on what I've done and up until now but it was definitely 
an experience that from which I I learned a lot great I actually just wanted to ask you about the chair because I remember reading something about the chair that you focus and it has this really beautiful story from memory yes so the chair uh comes from Ivory Coast and it's it's a really interesting chair because it carries this old legend from the 17th century and it's basically the legend talks about a young queen that uh, leads her her people away from from war in so away from the territory they were occupying which is modern Ghana so they were fleeing to a new land which is what we now know as Ivory Coast so she was walking with her tribe day and night with their enemies chasing them from afar until they reached the banks of of a river uh, which is called River Komwe but then as soon as they reached the river, they, they realized it is impossible to cross it. So they, they begin to throw inside the river their most valuable possessions until it gets to the queen's turn to throw an object in the river. And she realizes her most valuable, it's her son. So as soon as she throws her son in the river, um, hippos rose from it, allowing them to reach the other side. When they did reach the other side, the queen was, well, obviously really sad and unconsolable for the loss of her son. And all she could say was Baoli, which means the son is dead. So from that day on, they were known as the Baoli tribe. So wow. it was it was just nice to use this element, the chair, um, which adds a different layer of significance to to the image. Yeah, it really feels like it elevates. For me, the story really elevates the potential of what fashion can be. I was so excited when I saw it, but it just feels like it's a fashion story that you don't just want to revisit once. It's got so much there that you can keep going back to it and going back to it and kind of almost develop a relationship with it which I think is so exciting thank you so much for sort of taking us behind the scenes on that it's such a fantastic shoe I love it so much thank you thanks for having me For me, Maggie Shannon's personal project about giving birth in a pandemic is a career-defining project. What is so striking about her photographs is how accurately she captures the story of birth. There is such detail, the joy, the pain, the determination, the overwhelming spectrum of emotion and physical experiences. Maggie spent several months documenting the stories of women at birthing centres in LA. Traditionally in the US, women give birth in hospital, but due to the pandemic, many were looking for ways to regain control in this uncertain time. They wanted flexibility with their birth, an ability to move freely during labour, to have a partner or support person present, and to breathe without a mask. Things which are standard for birthing bodies outside of a pandemic. 
This ongoing project captures the stories of birth during a pandemic and the midwives who work tirelessly to support them. Visual storytelling around birth is so rare within our culture and is arguably one of the most defining acts of being human. We've seen the pandemic explored from so many different perspectives this year, all valid and vital to our processing of this devastating stage in history. But the publication of this work represents a significant moment in our culture, a shift in attitude around childbirth and a type of validation of this experience that we rarely see in mainstream media. Could you talk a little bit about the process of making this work, what it was like for you to document these women's journeys? And I was curious if this was the first time you've also witnessed birth. Yeah, so it was the first time I witnessed a birth for sure. And I remember, you know, feeling like, I don't know, it was so incredible just walking into that room and feeling that intensity and all those emotions from like everyone there, all the families. and the partners. So yeah, it was my first time and it was total roller coaster ride. <laughs> wow. That I mean, it's so funny because it often gets talked about there almost isn't the language to talk about what the experience of like birth is like, whether you're observing it or you're going through it. And it must have been so intense for you to experience a number of births yeah. all within kind of, you know, a few months. Yeah, definitely. I think like both of my parents work in the medical field. My mom's a nurse and my dad's a paramedic. Um, So I do feel like I have some knowledge of like, you know, I'm not squeamish around blood uh, (laughs) or anything (laughs) like that. But I do think the intensity of documenting a birth is something that's totally different from anything I'd ever shot before. Just the emotion that I was able to document was like, It just blew me out of the water, really. And the trust that also the women put in me to, I don't know, just be their collaborator in a way. Like I wanted it to show the pain that they were going through, but also show that joy as well. That was like something that I talked to the women a lot leading up to it as well. Like I tried to meet them, you know, on their porch uh, or they came to me definitely was important to me to make this super collaborative with them. Yeah, I was really curious about that because I think it's so rare to see pictures of childbirth, let alone ones that are so candid and joyful like yours. I was curious about how those relationships with the women you photographed kind of emerged and kind of, you know, did you guys agree individual boundaries with each of the couples or how did you kind of trust your gut as a photographer kind of privileged to be in that space of knowing when to kind of push in and when to pull back and those kind of, you know, navigating those dynamics in such a highly, you know, intense environment. Yeah. I think it was also a big collaboration with the midwives too, and all of their, you know, assistants and student midwives and doulas. Um, So yeah, it definitely, I had to trust my gut. And I think a lot of it was just like gut reactions, like knowing and looking at faces and sensing like, the emotional vibe of the room, you know. There's such a powerful connection there between yourself and the and the women you photographed. I think as well, kind of what is so striking about those photographs is how accurately you capture the story of birth. There's so much detail, you know, there's so much 
authenticity in the pain, in the joy, in the determination, in just the overwhelming kind of spectrum of emotion and physical experiences that kind of birth is, while also the pictures feel so timeless and universal. It's like, such a hard thing to do and it feels like it really does it um thank you so much that's really kind (laughs) yeah I mean it really does feel like there's nothing else like it and I wondered you know how much you thought about how you wanted to tell that story before you even began shooting or was it more of a kind of organic endeavor uh probably a little bit of both I mean I've been doing a lot of reading about births and the history of midwives and I think definitely making it as authentic as possible. That was in the back of my mind uh, for sure. But I do remember one moment where I was in the, the midwife was kind of moving one of the mothers in labor to different rooms to try and get it going, you know, and yeah. uh, in different positions as well. And I was trying to give them some privacy because my flash and the way I shoot is a little invasive, I think. So, you know, giving, People breaks um, from that was really important to me. Uh, But then I heard the midwife hollering like, you got to get in here. This is amazing. And so I walked (laughs) into the room and the husband was holding um, his wife, like holding her up from the back. And she was just stretched out like in the two. I think there was one doula and then the midwife, Shimen Perez, were there. And it was just this amazing moment. And Shimen was just like, you have to document this. You know, this is like what birth is like. This is real. Um, So, yeah, just having them, all the midwives there, so supportive. And I think also just like, I'm so grateful for the subjects, too, because they wanted this to be portrayed as realistic as possible. And like, you know power to them, man. Like that was like so amazing. I'm so grateful for the subjects I had on this story. For sure. I mean that, you know, that takes such vulnerability, such Mm -hmm. enormous vulnerability actually to um, share that experience with both you and also the world. Mm -hmm. Um, It's interesting that you, that like the midwives were kind of like also kind of mini art directors in some way, kind (laughs) of like (laughs) pulling you into like key moments. That's really cool. The project really speaks to this massive burden placed on midwives during this this time this year during the pandemic um they were obviously always so vital to any woman in a birthing context um but it must have been challenging for them kind of navigating different circumstances and obviously the fear around covid and, and all of the extra additional work that that kind of put on their shoulders and obviously i wasn't that familiar with this but i I didn't realize that most women in the US give birth in hospital. Mm -hmm. So obviously that had limitations due to the pandemic. So a lot of the midwives that that you photographed kind of, you know, were creating and taking care of hundreds of women in different circumstances to the usual. And I wondered for you as a photographer, what was it like kind of entering the domain of a midwife during that time? Yeah, I mean, I think I've they were so overwhelmed really I felt horrible adding to their (laughs) burden by being like hey can I come along (laughs) um but I think you know they never complained about it if anything they were like you know I need to take on more people I need to help these women through this um there was never any negativity about it it was just like okay gotta pivot and make this work which was so inspiring to see 
Um, but yeah, one of, I think I mentioned her before, Shimem Perez, she had moved her entire birth clinic outside at the very start of the pandemic to see more people um, and to keep it a bit more COVID safe. So she had set up these tents and they had like all of these protocols put in place with the uh, midwife taking temperatures before people came in and kind of staggering uh, clients. And yeah, I think like being able to document those changes that they put in place and how they were keeping everyone so safe, it was really special. Yeah, and, and such an important moment in history to document because such they they were doing such profoundly important work at a time where their profession, you know, was under so much strain. It's just so I feel like it's so important that you documented that. Yeah, definitely. I think like in the United States too, like a lot of people don't understand like I was talking to a friend about the project when I first started out and he was like very upset by it and worried about the women choosing to go the home birth like route. Um, and he was like, you know, I hope you would never do that. I would try and talk you out of it. And like, wait, what? Like, you're like, you know, one of my good friends, you're a liberal, like what's going on? This mm. is interesting. Okay. You know? And I think it's just like a lack of education or knowledge in this option, especially in the United States. So that was another, I mean, there's so many reasons that this project is so important to me, but that was definitely a big one. Like, you know, trying to show and educate people that it's not weird and it's not, I mean, everything, birth is dangerous, labor is dangerous, but, you know, being able to give women the options and the choice um, and just education. Yeah. How incredible is that? Yeah, <laughs> truly. That with photography. What was the origin of the project? What made you want to tell this story? Uh, one of my good friends is a doula in Los Angeles. And right at the start of the pandemic, I think even before we were in quarantine, we were just chatting. And uh, I don't even remember like what brought this on. <laughs> but she mentioned kind of in an offhand way, like, oh, I bet there's going to be like a rise in home births because of COVID. Um, and that just really struck me, like lightning bolt kind of moment. And I started reaching out to midwives in LA and also like all the different organizations in the United States to see if this was true. And I think it was like, I started reaching out at the start of a week, like on a Monday, and they were all kind of like, yeah, I don't know, we don't really see a difference. But then by Thursday, Friday, people started getting back to me. And they were like, wait, whoa, okay, wow. it's actually crazy. You were right. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, yeah. And then after that, I started reaching out to people in Los Angeles specifically to see if I could follow some midwives. And yeah, everyone was super excited to be on board. So I'm, I'm so pleased you did it because it feels like so much of the storytelling around the pandemic has been very much focused on the health impact and the economic impact and not much else in terms of, you know, daily, daily life and the things that happen that need to keep, you know, the world moving. And so this feels like such, 
such a vital part of our lives that yeah would have just gone unseen had you not done this work I'm interested also to to talk a little bit about your visual language because you're known for such bold colorful work Uh, when I first saw this I felt like it was a little bit of a departure for you and I wondered how you kind of made decisions in terms of your your aesthetical approach with this series for this project it just seemed almost ridiculous to shoot it in color Um, and the color felt so distracting like I really wanted the attention to be on like you know a hand touching you know another hand or a shoulder and like just that raw emotion and the color though like incredible and beautiful really kind of took away from it in a way like it it became more about like that teal wall behind someone you know sitting on an examination bed and that it wasn't about like the expression on the mother's face. Um, so yeah, that was, there was so many different little choices that went into making this black and white, but I really think it was because of that timeless quality that you mentioned too. And then also just really having it be about that raw emotion. Yeah. It really brings to life the gestures. I think that's what really overwhelmed me when I saw the Mm. pictures for the first time, it was those really intimate gestures, which are, Again, it's sort of difficult to describe, but those moments in birth where you're, yeah, it, it's kind of like the title, right? It's it, it, the juxtaposition of like pain and joy. And those gestures are kind of hard to articulate unless you've been through them, but they're so present in that work. And I think really come to life due to due to those sort of creative decisions that you made. I think the publication of this work really represents like a significant moment in our culture and a real shift in attitude to childbirth. Um, There's been so many fantastic conversations around this work. And I think it's really validated this experience that uh, birthing bodies go through um, in a way that we've never seen in the mainstream media. So Mm -hmm. I just really want to thank you for making such truly important work. I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. Thank you. You're listening to The Messy Truth, conversations on photography. Next up is Sarah Allen. Sarah is one of the curators at Tate Modern. She worked on Zanelli Moholy's first major UK survey. Moholy's work challenges dominant ideologies and representations of the black LGBTQI community in South Africa. Moholy is one of the most important photographers working today. But what I found so radical about the show is how the Tate centred activism, developing authentic relationships and collaborations with the black queer community, and how this led to a kind of democratisation of curating. They brought in so many voices to be part of the life of the exhibition. In a time when art institutions are facing a long overdue reckoning about how they operate and who they are for, this show felt like a truly positive step forward. So this is the first major survey of Zanelli Moholy's work. They're probably one of the most important photographers working today. Could you talk a little bit about the creation of the show, the research, and how you worked with Zanelli to realise their vision? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And one of the really important aspects of the show I kind of want to flag is that we were quite keen that we approach kind of different mode of exhibition making and one of the ways we've done that is through collaboration and collaboration is so key for Maholi you know they've always said that um, it's the work is not about them it's about us so their collaboration is really at the heart of their practice so we were keen to 
weave that through the way we made the show. So we collaborate with the BAME network and the LGBTQIA network at Tate to form a working group, which really, um, really informed the show in so many ways uh, from kind of um, conceptualizing the exhibition as a safe space to um, commissioning a glossary of really important terms related to um, queer life and also issues of race. So that was one of the real success stories of the show, I think, in terms of, you know, how we can really bring um, a new way of thinking to exhibition making in general. But we also had to remap it to the Blavatnik building um, following lockdown in, uh, well, we locked down in April um, and then the show had to change spaces um, and we opened it in November. But that process, I spent several months over lockdown redesigning the exhibition for the new space um and that was really informative and i think you know daunting and all as it was it was really to the benefit of the work because the big spaces in the Blavatnik building allow you know the room for those very important archives spaces and phases in somyama gonyama um and really you know allow maholi's practice which isn't very rigidly defined all the series kind of talk to each other um in these really beautiful ways and now with the open space you kind of you get more of a sense of that um and also it allowed us to include work that we hadn't previously included in the show um for example Maholi's Miss Lesbian series which I absolutely love because it's this early, you know, example of how performance, performing for the camera, props, staging, costume was apparent in Maholi's work from the very beginning. And we've come to know it very well, of course, in their self-portraits. But I really see this series as a kind of um, proto-Somnyama, Gonyama, and like, you know, prefigures all of that. So so we were able to bring that into the show um, at the last moment. Um, and yeah, we, we, we we're kind of very happy with how it's looking. That's awesome. That's so interesting that you had to shift the entire exhibition yeah that's mad isn't it yeah interesting and stressful I imagine yeah yeah completely um but you know we made lemonade out of lemons I think um it all came good in the end which is you know it's fantastic so Zanelli defines as a visual activist as opposed to an artist how did you seek to investigate and unpack how this manifests in the context of an exhibition yeah it's a really really good question and um there are a couple of ways we've sought to do this. Um, one is to really investigate that early activist practice that Maholi was engaged in. Um, and so that includes the books, ephemera, all related to the Forum for Empowerment of Women, which was um, an activist group they founded um, as a safe space for black lesbian women to kind of come together and organise. Um, we have gone into the archives of the Gala um, Gala Archive in Johannesburg to pull out that ephemera related to this activist practice and bring it into vitrines um, in the show to really highlight that, you know, Maholi came to photography through activism. That was their first calling, really. So it was so important to be able to uncover that material. Um, and another way we've done it as well is through a timeline in the exhibition, which is an important element because dates and history are so important to Maholi, their place in history, in the history of apartheid and post-apartheid, but also their history as it relates to the emergence of queer activism in the um, in the moment after democracy in South Africa. So we have lots of um, posters related to anti-apartheid activism. 
and also ephemera related to uh, kind of, yeah, for example, the first uh, Pride March in Johannesburg. And I was really keen through this timeline um, to try and recenter the female voices within that history because the history of, you know, photography in South Africa is so male dominated and it's something Maholi is keenly aware of, but also the history of um, anti-apartheid activism. You know, many people know that male names, but they might not know the very important female activists. So we have some fantastic inclusions there, you know, um, female Afropix photographers and, you know, beautiful book by Leslie Lawson um, on kind of working women, black working women under apartheid. So it was it was really important to recenter Maholi within those contexts of activism, which are so profoundly informative um, in their practice. Um, and so hopefully we take we hope the Tate show, you know, brings that extra element that maybe people haven't seen before um, in, in Maholi shows. Maholi's practice is grounded in emotion and personal experience. They really evoke joy, trauma and resilience, really affirming the lives of everyone they photograph. And this intimate exchange is not only between the visual activist and their participant, but also between the work and its viewer. It's really strong and a very connected gaze in a lot of those portraits. I wondered how you thought about intimacy when you were curating the show. I love this question because it's so easy to forget about intimacy and love and tenderness, um, especially because Maholi's work emerged um, as, a, as a reaction to this rising instance of hate crime felt among particularly the black lesbian community in South Africa. So that there are really hard hitting and difficult stories threaded throughout their entire practice. Um, but that's not to overshadow this question of intimacy. Um, and certainly, you know, Maholi was very aware that they didn't want the narrative on black lesbians in South Africa to be completely dominated by one of victimhood. So from a very early point, they, you know, photograph these beautiful intimate shots of their participants, um, they, you know, who invited them into their most private spaces to really show that queer desire and intimacy is is present, is natural, is human. And also to counter that persistent idea that homosexuality or same-sex desire is un-African, which is, you know, a complete fallacy um, and is really, you know, stems from this idea of um, same-sex desire being a colonial import to Africa, which, um, you know, absolutely has no basis in fact it was religious missionaries which did uh, did a lot to enforce heteronormativity so maholi's practice really seeks to um to to, to discredit this idea and, and through intimacy and desire and picturing that uh it, it's hugely successful in my opinion and i also love your kind of um reference to the gaze because it's something that um most people come and see Maholi's work and are completely struck by, and it is such an important uh, facet of their practice. Uh, they talk about how insomniama ganyama, their self-portraits, they're trying to channel what Bell Hooks has refer referred to as the oppositional gaze. So that um, kind of almost political rebellion um, against uh, the repression of a black person's right to look back. 
you know, what does it mean for a black person to look back? And Maholi really does this so successfully in that series. And we've tried to install that uh, room to create this kind of network of gazes that almost ensnares the viewer um, in this dialogue, really. And that, of course, also refers to the history of, you know, the colonial gaze and, you know, picturing the black subject um, who, that is often doesn't have any name, that is dehumanised. Um, but Maholi in the series reclaims authority, reclaims agency through that gaze. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's something that certainly stays with the viewer and haunts the viewer long after they leave the show. It certainly did for me. Yeah, for sure. It's very powerful. When I've spoken to Maholi before, they stress the role of the people they photograph as participants and community is really at the heart of everything they do. And I was really excited to see how the tape built on this ethos, especially with the collaboration with UK Black Pride. And there was one particular film that I saw called From a Place of Love, where members of the queer, trans and intersex people of colour community reflected on their experiences of home and love. And it was filmed within one of the exhibition rooms. And the Tate, like many art institutions, has not always been open and accessible to black and brown bodies or marginalised communities. But this dialogue felt truly vital in the beginnings of trying to address this kind of problematic legacy. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about these partnerships around the exhibition and what you hope to achieve with them. Absolutely. Um, I think it goes back to that question that, that at the very beginning of our conversation about what, what it means to be a visual activist. You know, how can we bring Maholi's work to Tate in a way that really does justice to the very important fact they define as a visual activist? And one of the real joys is that a, a place like Tate, an institution like Tate, has departments at its disposal that speak directly um, to that facet of their practice. So Tate Exchange, there, there is no better place, um, there's no better kind of department to collaborate with. And I think their kind of tagline is um, what happens when art and society meet. And for an activist, that really strikes to the heart of uh the issue really so so it was so obvious from the outset that we would collaborate with Tate Exchange and then we very quickly formulated the idea to um, extend that collaboration and invite UK Black Pride in to co-curate the programme um, and really that was so important because this allowed um, the exhibition to speak to the communities that that it needs to serve so the black community and the queer community um, and they've just done a fantastic job um, and we really hope that it's something that will be picked up by other curators or the shows happening at Tate um, and we really hope that it's the beginning of a new form of collaboration and that the legacy of the Maholi show can you know, be felt in those ongoing collaborations. Um, and UK Black Pride will also distribute 500 free tickets um, to relevant community community centres and relevant um, collaborators so that we can really make sure that, you know, people can come and see this show because it is so important. Maholi's work is so informative, you know, for, for so many people. I can't tell you how many people, um, how many artists I've spoken to that just cite Maholi as... Um, such an inspiration so we were really keen yeah to to collaborate across Tate and make sure that this exhibition hits home for the people that need it the most. 
It feels like we're in a time of polarising politics and work like this, which educates, activates and promotes solidarity is even more urgent. I'm curious what your highlights were of the exhibition. So many, so many highlights, definitely. Um, I mean, from a purely kind of personal perspective, I absolutely love working on books and editing the catalogue was a pure joy um, because... I was able to work with a very um, talented book designer and that was just a really fantastic process to be able to bring the exhibition to life in a new way through the book form. But then on, I guess, a much more, well, foundational or or maybe um, important level, uh, visiting South Africa for a research trip uh, to develop the exhibition was really, really informative. Um, I visited Market Photo Workshop uh, where Maholi studied um, and I also visited the Apartheid Museum which was unbelievable it was um I intended to spend you know a few hours and ended up spending the entire day so that research being able to really be on the ground um, in Cape Town Johannesburg and delving into the archives informed the exhibition so much um, but also of course working with Maholi uh, has been an incredibly humbling experience. You know, their commitment to participants, and they always refer to the people they photograph as participants, never subjects, which, you know, really is illustrative of the dedication to the people they work with um, and the kind of wanting to trouble that power dynamic that's so intrinsic to photography. So really working with Maholi and um, seeing how they live and breathe their activism, that, you know, they've said that photography might well their photography is not for show it's not for play um that really you know above art fine art comes life and the people that they are so dedicated to and the community that they give back to in so many ways so that was yeah just um kind of very career um career highlight i would say um and also just on that point as well it's really important to remember the risk involved in practice like this. You know, the the risk, the personal risk that Maholi takes to tell these stories is uh, profound. And, you know, when I was researching uh, for the catalogue, I was reading a lot of Audre Lorde. And one of the quotes that really stuck out with me is that visibility, which makes us most vulnerable, is also the source of our greatest strength. And it really kind of speaks to Maholi's work that, um, you know, that idea that, you know, they are really putting themselves at risk. But the idea of creating, of writing a history, creating an archive is kind of a greater task that they feel um, hugely dedicated to for the rest of their life. Thank you so much, Sarah. That was so fascinating to get an, sort of a little sneak peek behind the scenes of the exhibition and how it all came together. No problem. Yeah, absolutely. Pleasure. Um, and I hope your listeners get to come and see the show. We've extended it until the end of May, so there is more time. I've long admired the work of Camilla Falquez. She uses visual storytelling to transcend the confines of reality, manifesting new ways of seeing. This year, she launched Being in History, a powerful personal project that examines the relationship between beauty and power. Camilla's photographs are disarmingly beautiful, truly honouring the individuals she collaborated with. But it was how the work manifested into something bigger which made the project so special. 
the decisions she made around how the work was made, who published it, therefore who had access to it, and also how she used the platform to fundraise for the community, laid the foundations for a new model of making work, one that is thoughtful, engaged, accountable and community focused. Being in History is this incredible project, this embodiment of a new history, a kind of celebration of queer, non-binary, black and brown bodies, looking at the intersection of power and beauty. I'd love to hear about the genesis of this project and kind of where it began. Mm -hmm. Um, I just want to rephrase your question as part of my answer, Mm -hmm. because um, what I'm trying to do is not create a new history. I'm trying to include in history people who have existed ever since the beginning of time. So it's not like we're creating something new. I think it's just visualizing the fact that there are more people in the world who have power and who should be able to access positions of power. So I think what I'm trying to do with this project, and it, it was this very organic way of realizing that, and I can go into that in a second, is to just put in a pedestal where only we've seen one type of beauty, more beauty, other types of beauty, and say, this is beautiful too. And maybe through that connection, the beauty and power have to give like a more um, open sense of power to more people, not just white and people that belong to the binary. And that's how I... That's the conclusion of what we're trying to do. (laughs) And it's evolving. It sounded complicated, but it's something that I've come to terms and to realize by myself. And it's been like a long way. I essentially started this project with close friends of mine. And, you know, I grew up in Europe where I used to go with my parents to all of the big museums, the Louvre, Museo d'Orsay, El Prado, um, And where I remember just going to see to these museums, like what was told to me that was beauty. Oh, we're going to see these big paintings of Velázquez, Goya, you know, the Dutch paintings. And uh, and then, you know, it's like this very visual symbolism of like us looking up into these paintings that, you know, we don't understand what it's doing to our unconsciousness because then when we see in positions of power people that look essentially the same as those people in the paintings, we don't question it because it's the people that occupy the museums of like, you know, those big, it's like, you're going to go in and here's beauty. And then you're like, okay, here's beauty. Okay. I guess this is what power is too. And we don't question it. So as I was shooting this, it was just started casually with a couple of friends in my studio. I saw these photos the first couple of portraits were of like my first friends, like my really close friends. And I, I remember getting the film back with, and realizing that I had never seen photos like that, that I had never seen people of color and that don't belong to the binary feeling so regal and feeling so powerful in a setting of light, not in a setting of the underground and sexualized or you know, just like in a very present sense of regalness. Like, and then as I saw these photos and kept going, just like it was this very slow process as I was investigating the history of beauty. I like read this book by Umberto Eco that's called The History of Beauty. Um, And then I was like reading about, you know, gender and like how is whiteness related to a gender binary? And then like 
realizing that everything is connected, that everything is there for a reason, almost to control who owns power. And so I just, as I went with my research, I kept going with the photos and the, and the stories that came out and the beauty that came out of them just kept growing. And that's essentially how it started. It was this very innocent, almost, vision of mine that then, you know, pulling the thread became bigger and bigger. And where else did you draw inspiration from for the work? And how did the project evolve through the collaboration with your team and the people that you photographed? The inspiration was really just um, paintings, uh, essentially from the, like, you know, the Dutch paintings, all right? Like this happened, I also had happened to travel to Amsterdam back in the day when we used to be able to travel. <laughs> and I visited that, um, the big museum they have there. Um, and that's when it hit me because I, that's when I saw like lines and lines of people just looking up into these paintings of essentially just white men and women. And there's one painting in that museum of a black man that is like, I don't know, it's like three inches like 10 centimeters big, essentially. And that's the one painting of a black man. And it hit me and I, I literally that's all the inspiration. I didn't do any other research. And as I kept evolving, I realized that hair and makeup really helped. So I brought into the team, even though it was very simple, it was just hair, makeup, my really good friend, Ebony, and a rotating makeup artist and me in my studio with natural light and just props that I, during the week, would gather, fabrics, and that's it. And, you know, it was just really beautiful to have each person come in, you know, people I would find in the street, friends, people I found on Instagram. It was this very intuitive process of finding people. It wasn't, you know, imposing myself, oh, I need someone queer, I need someone, I, I need someone trans, I need someone gender non-conforming. It was just me intuitively finding beautiful people and bringing them to the studio and as they came we gave them this like spa <laughs> it was I realized that makeup and hair really helped that person feel beautiful that helped them like get gain that sense of regalness and then I would just stand them in the pedestal and you know mostly naked and then from there I would like you know start draping fabrics on my own and, you know, the photos would just happen in that moment. And I would, we would ask the person, like, what do they want? How do they feel? What makeup do they want? What? And then in that process, the person felt safe. The person felt seen. The person felt, you know, comfortable to look, like, very surreal. Because at the end, you know, that's the whole point is come here, be your most true self, and I want to give you back how I see you. I want to give you back this moment. And there wasn't one time that, you know, it wasn't like a very magical time. Like there's like, there's all these little stories that happened during those shoots that made me realize that this was very important. For me as well, that kind of regalness that you mentioned and, and the concept overall really took on an additional meaning in the wider culture kind of around the same time that you released it because that was at a time when these statues that symbolise repression and hate were being torn down or protested around around the world. And obviously that was not something that you planned, that just happened, but it felt like at the time it made the work even more powerful to me. It was like 
you were offering mm-hmm. a wider idea of beauty to be celebrated mm-hmm. and to be respected. And it, that that made the work feel even more powerful to me. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's more like an idea of power, what I wanted to translate in the end. Like it, I, it's, ref- it's phrased with beauty, but because our, I think our brains relate beauty to power. That's my theory. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. our ideas of beauty make us, you know, allows for certain people to have power and certain people to not have power. It's like this power we own, beauty. Um, and the release is actually something that was sought through. I, you know, when the pandemic hit, I had over 30 portraits. And I had, you know, it was very vague to me what I was going to do with this. I had these photos that I just kept going, you know, every other weekend. And, you know, I spoke to my agent who was like a really close person to me we were bouncing ideas and I kept telling her like I really can't keep these images to myself with the world falling apart and this is the beginning of the pandemic I had no idea what was going to happen but um you know as things evolved and as we were marching in the streets as you know as I realized that we needed hope that we needed new ideas I this day actually I was doing yoga (laughs) And I said to myself, I I need to paste these. I need to paste these. And then from then till I pasted them was like weeks of craziness of me biking back and forth from the city because we weren't taking the subway. I live in Brooklyn and finding in the streets where the Pride March would have been because, um, you know, in Chelsea where Stonewall happened, Um, I started looking around for walls and asking permission, talking to landlords, talking to business owners and, you know, going back and forth, following up. And that was like two weeks and then of prepping. And then I realized that, you know, the pasting had to go along with a website. We had to raise funds. And then, and this all happened also because a lot of media I sent it to didn't want the project. And that actually fueled me more to think I should self-release it, not only because, you know, they didn't want it, but because I realized that if anyone would have wanted it, they would have edited the selection. And that was like right at the, that that's the opposite of what I want. And so Um, self-releasing it also felt like I, the right thing is like, why don't we create the movement? So I sent each person their own image that they hadn't seen. So first of all, I was like, here you are. This is very important. And some people hadn't seen it because it had been a year since we had shot that. And then I explained to them the project and they um, were very excited. And then we decided to release it all together the same day that I was pasting the photos. So it became like a physical place, you know, in the streets and then also something online that all directed the efforts to this fundraiser that, you know, was a print sale. Um and it was, I've never been more crazy in my life, <laughs> juggling all of those things on my own. I did that on my own. And the pasting, um, if you want some details about it, was the most crazy experience of my life because it was extremely hard. <laughs> it was this physical effort that, you know, I did with my close friends. We all, you know, went there and I had rented a scissor lift, a scaffolding. We had no idea how to use them. These photos were huge because I think in meters and they 
and I printed them in feet. <laughs> you know, they're like, oh, 15 feet. And I, and I guess I was just not really aware what that meant. And then when I saw them, I was like, oh, my God. And then I saw myself up in a 19 feet, which is like six meters, scissor lift with my bike helmet. <laughs> Um, and with a broom, I love it. gluing this wall. And as the glue is falling on me, I'm looking down. And I, as I'm like moving the broom, the whole thing is moving and balancing. And the floor of the, of the scissor lift is super slippery. No, no, no. It was, uh, it was a, an odyssey. But we managed to do it. Almost died, but we managed to do it. And they were <laughs> up by... Uh, I think it was Mar uh, May 20, no, June 29. And the next day, instead of being a pride parade that was not happening because of COVID, there was a queer march that was extremely related to the Black Lives Matter movement. And it was like, it felt all right. It felt like, oh, yes, Stonewall didn't start as a sponsored parade by brands. Stonewall started as a march and it felt like this year it was the same essence as how it started and like the march walked by our photos and I saw that and I almost died out of happiness and the photos came out into the world at the same time online and on Instagram and the website was up and it's it was like giving birth <laughs> I wanted to actually ask you about the manifesto, which was mm -hmm. written by Anissa Tavanga, mm -hmm. which included thoughts from each of the people you photographed on their ideas of power, beauty and history. And I wondered, like, how did the edition of text evolve the work for you? I'm glad you asked this, because to me, those words are extremely important to the project. Um, mostly because as I was doing this, it was very obvious to me that I should not be at the center of this narrative, that this project was not meant to be about me. And so I kept finding ways to decenter it from me and giving it to the, to the subjects. That was at the, at the core of the reasoning why I thought it was good to self-publish and that each subject had the power over their image and to be able to publish their image was that it wasn't me doing it or any other medium. It was them in control. So obviously phrasing what we were doing had to come from someone else, not me. And so I found Anissa on Instagram. She was writing these really um, important things about um, blackness and about um, she did a post about the Met Museum. That was fascinating to me. And so I just reached out and I told her about the project. And she uh, told me that, you know, she was into the idea of creating like something written by her, but through the answers of all, each and every single subject on the theme of beauty and power and regalness. So she did an amazing job of interviewing each person and putting together that manifesto. That to me was super important. And the, at, the, at, at the core of what we were doing. And I was really clear that it hasn't, it didn't have to be my words at all, <laughs> at all. So um, yeah, I'm really glad you asked about those words because they are very important to the project. How did making this work change you? 
oh my god in a million ways in a million ways um it has changed me because i have through it been able to question my own ways of thinking about gender about my um heritage about everything that i've inherited from society as a woman um everything that i have you know silently allowed i've learned about my privilege i'm colombian but i have very light skin and i knew that that was a power it was like i felt very responsible because i knew that i was given these these walls were given to me because of how i look and so it was a huge responsibility to me to make sure i used them for something that was beyond me so it's essentially like if i'm like this gate that opens it up for all the other people behind me that don't get this access so i was really aware of that and it has changed me also because i realized that you know we are very powerful we can do whatever we want we don't need media we don't need a publishing house we don't need anything but like a movement of many people towards the same direction for something to resonate with the world you know i feel like coming to the conclusion that we had to self publish it was very brave i remember the conversation perfectly with sarah my agent and she was, she was like yeah let's just do it ourselves and i was like okay <laughs> and that moment it it made the whole difference because i was able to put the work out there with the message i wanted you know so it it arrived to you packaged as it should not you know mediated by other people that were going to impose their vision or their restrictions or their limitations again so it felt like i've learned about that a lot i would tell everyone to just do that <laughs> yeah i agree i think there's so much power and liberation that comes from that for sure yeah totally an important part of the project was also the print sale where you raised funds to protect the lives of trans women of color can you talk a little bit about that side of the project as well so attaching to this project a printer was really important because we thought that and when i say we i say i say me it sounds like i had this big team and i did <laughs> um, <laughs> it um i thought that you know with this movement we had to do something with that energy and even though i believe in the power of photography i'm really aware that you know it, a, a photograph is not actual change it shows it manifests but it's not change we need laws to change we need um jobs to change so the idea of doing a print sale was actually giving back to the community in a real way and if you had been moved by the project you could buy a print and we were able to raise over $20,000 that's incredible that's incredible i was like i just kept seeing that the sales come in and i couldn't believe it and then I was able to give that money back. I gave it to three organizations in New York that do amazing work: the Okra Project, Glitz, and the Marsha P. Johnson Institute. They are amazing. If people want to donate, still they can go directly to their websites. Um, and it felt amazing. I had never done a wire transfer of that much money <laughs> to someone, and just to do it was this big adrenaline and you know, gave me a lot of peace and to like, and also like a lot of energy to be like, wow, we're so powerful, you know, we can do this. Okay. Um, and so I, I'm sure I'm going to do more stuff like this uh, forever. <laughs> 
because it's, it's it's like an amazing feeling to be able to do this through photography. It's so true. And it's such a powerful project. Thanks so much for taking us behind the scenes on it, Camilla. That was great. I really thank you. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this special and getting insight into some of the work that has really inspired me this year. Thanks again for your continued support. If you enjoy The Messy Truth, please like and subscribe, write a review on Apple Podcasts and share with friends. I'll be back in 2021 with a new season and some amazing guests. Take care and stay safe.